I've found personally, the first thing is always expect that there's something wrong. Like even if everything looks like it's working well, that might mean that there's something wrong, actually. Welcome to Nerd Out at Spotify, where we bring you behind the curtain of the world's most popular audio streaming subscription service. Machine learning, open source, clouds, tabs versus spaces. We'll talk to Spotify engineers about interesting tech issues, big and small. Every time you open the Spotify app, you're presented with something new to listen to. Whether it's a new release from your favorite artist or a classic track that's new to you. Do you play the track? Do you skip it? Add it to a playlist? How will that affect your recommendations when you open the app tomorrow or even five years from now? And how did the app decide to give you that recommendation in the first place? The answer is the magic of machine learning. But of course, it's not magic. It's just really cool technology that can feel like magic when it's working right. When people think of machine learning, they often focus on the algorithms, those models we train and deploy to understand your tastes and make a recommendation about something else we think you'll enjoy. But at Spotify, it's always been about more than just the algorithm. We look at the whole user experience. As our first guest says, personalization is about understanding the user, understanding our content, and knowing when is the right time to recommend some of this content to that user. Machine learning is about humans on one side of the algorithm, trying to better understand the humans on the other side. In these next episodes, we'll dive right into machine learning at Spotify. If you're not an ML engineer, I'm sure one of the first things you want to know is just how does machine learning work? What cool tools do you get to use? What makes ML engineering so different from other types of software engineering? And what's it like deploying code that you can't always predict? In a few minutes, we'll talk to an ML engineer about just those things. But before we talk about the how, it's important to understand the why. Why does Spotify use ML in the first place? What makes machine learning, and in particular reinforcement learning, the right technology for creating a rewarding, personalized experience for each one of our hundreds of millions of listeners? To understand all that, we need to dig into the research, and we have just the person for the job. Meet Munya Lalmas Roleke. I'm a researcher based in our London office. I'm part of the personalization mission, and we do a lot of the research that try to help making our product better from a personalization aspect. Munya isn't just a researcher. She's Spotify's director of tech research. Today, Spotify has more than 30 research scientists and over 160 data scientists. Our research covers a range of areas, including user modeling, music creation, language analysis, search, algorithmic responsibility, and much more. Along with doing fundamental research and publishing findings, the work our researchers do also helps our developers understand the right tools for the right jobs. Why we have research scientists at Spotify is often in some of our products, some of our problems, our strategy, we require a very deep understanding of existing technology and methodology. It means it's not just taking a tool that exists and apply it. It's not going to work. It needs to understand what is behind that tool, what is behind that technology and the methodology. And often it, to fulfill, to deliver on those strategy, on those roadmap, it, it requires the development of new ideas that have not been done elsewhere. Of course, choosing the right technology and methodology depends on what your goal is. If your goal is like ours, better personalization and recommendations, that means understanding three things. Personalization is understanding the user, understanding our content, knowing when it is the time to recommend some of this content to our users. We do that in various ways, user research, 
data science. We try also to understand the impact of our UI. We try to understand how users react to our content. So there's a lot of things around our understanding of the user. How do we provide a semantic to it? and how we build representation of those users that we can feed in our various algorithms. The goal is really the long-term satisfaction. It's not just about the next click. So even just understanding one of those things, the user, has its own problems to solve. But it's that last part of what Munya said that we think is the most interesting problem. What does long-term satisfaction mean as opposed to the instant gratification of the next click? After all, if we keep making users happy right now, won't that also mean they'll be happy later? Not necessarily. According to Munya, what you want in the moment isn't the same thing as what you'll need to be satisfied over the long term. Or that's what the research tells us. We have identified that users that have a more diverse taste of music tend to stay longer on Spotify. So this is trying to understand what makes users stay longer. It's just because they like the content more. And what does it mean to like the content more? Is because they listen to much more diverse type of content. Just one bit of clarification here. When we say stay longer on Spotify, we don't mean spend more time in the app. We just mean that they continue to enjoy using Spotify over time, that they like it. And so the research tells us that those users who are more satisfied over the long term are also those who like more diverse content. People who haven't just found new things to listen to, but a wider range of new things over a longer period of time. When it comes to recommendations, this poses a problem. It's one thing to recommend a song we're pretty sure you're like now. It's quite another to recommend content that we think maybe you'll appreciate later, possibly even years from now. Or another way to think of the problem, if diverse content is what makes users more satisfied, then personalization is less like fitting you into a mold and more like a journey, a journey of discovery. Whereas Munya tells us, it's like a walk in the park. Imagine you are walking a very nice, beautiful park and you can go straight forward following the path or take some stairs. So going straight forward, if you put the analogy to music, it's like I'm listening to something and the next recommendation is just going to be exactly what I'm expecting. Now, I may decide to take the stairs. It's a bit more effort, but maybe at the top of the stairs, I have a beautiful view of the park. So if we connect this to music, it's a bit like Discover Weekly. Discover Weekly is going to be a lot of tracks that are going to be kind of trialed. The user may skip a lot of those, but the user may discover some new artists that they really fall in love and so on. So this is this notion of easy and harder. Continue on the path or take the stairs. If we relate this to our playlist, it's like on repeat, or Discover Weekly, which is more about the discovery. So if you translate this into what we're trying to do, is how to guide users on their journey of familiar wants and discovery needs. It relates very nicely to the notion of reward that is really core to reinforcement learning. One kind of recommendation algorithm will just keep giving users more of what they already like, making them happy in the short term, that flat path in the park. And this is definitely an important need to fulfill. When you're feeling funky, sometimes what you need after four hours of funk is more funk. But we also need to find a way to help listeners discover different content they might grow to like, so they'll be happy over the long term. So how do we help listeners explore other paths, the one with the stairs that might reward you with the better view? The right tool for that is reinforcement learning. 
You may be familiar with reinforcement learning from how it's used to teach computers to play strategy games, like chess or Go. In those games, you're not just looking at your next move. You might sacrifice a position now to get to a winning position 10 moves later. In this metaphor, it's about looking at how each move changes the state of the board and asking, did that get me closer or further away from the ultimate goal? And then learning from that, whether it's a good or bad move. Because it's about optimizing for the ultimate goal, the sum of the rewards, and not just the immediate one. Munya tells us how this relates to music, how even if a user is skipping our recommendations now, we're still learning, and even those skips are working towards a bigger reward to come. So we can think of a reinforcement learning system as an agent that takes action and consider the resulting listener state and learn how to make it better. So I'm going to recommend you this track and I'm going to see how you react to it. I'm going to learn from this. So my next action is going to be better. What we're also trying to do as part of the arrangements for learning is to learn policies that capture the relationship between an action taken now and those actions that will influence future listener satisfaction. So this is the link. It's like the policy. And this is, for example, where we do a lot of work is uh, what kind of policy? How do we combine various aspects to make the connection between the now and the future? And the reward is we want to optimize for the sum of the rewards so that listeners are satisfied in the long term. So it could mean maybe the user do a lot of skip, but in the long term, the user is consuming more content because we've been managing to introduce them to some new content. So the goal is to help our users discover new content that they will like based on the content we know they already like. And how do we know what they already like? It seems like an easy question, but identifying and separating the signals that tell us about a user's unique tastes depends on a lot of factors. In machine learning, these are referred to as features. And there are many different kinds of features for every user. Slow features may give us signals about long-term tastes, like how many different genres of music someone has ever listened to. Fast features are more about understanding specific moments. One piece of research that we have done recently is to separate overall user taste that is more long-term to the in-moment taste. We do that by identifying features we call slow features. So those are the more long-term. Somebody like a particular type of genre over their listening time with us. And we have the other one, which is the fast one. It's like when this is the morning, I have different tastes than in the evening or particular time during, for example, a month, things change and so on. And we use what we call a fast feature for this. So we have this notion of slow feature, fast features. What are they? How do we combine them? And how do we inject that into our recommendation to, for example, recommend an extract? Features help us understand a user's taste by understanding the user's context. That context isn't just when or how they're listening to the content, but also what they're listening to. The content itself has many features to consider. So feature could be something as simple time of the day, which day of the week, the device that is being used. There's also features associated with the content itself. Is it a podcast? What type of podcast? Is it a long podcast, a short podcast? And respect to music or playlist. User behave very differently depending on the type of playlist. 
a sleeping playlist, user usually click and fall asleep. That's the whole point of a sleeping playlist. So when you try to understand user behavior, the reward function, you know, successful interaction with the playlist when there's a sleeping playlist is very different to Discover Weekly, which is about discovering new content. So it's everything that allow us to bring better understanding at the content level, but also the context. In the context of music, we have different ways to understand the, the contents. And sometimes it's the fact that tracks are often listened together by similar users. So this is why collaborative filtering still works very well. Collaborative filtering. It's an oldie but a goodie. If you have similar taste as someone else, maybe you'll like other things they listen to as well. It's another way to ease you up that path to experiencing something new. So... You have a piece of content that is listened by a user and another user that tends to listen to similar content that first user. So if that first user suddenly listens to something completely new that has not been listened by the second user, it's a good bet that you can recommend that to that second user. If you and I listen to the same content, if I listen to something new, it's a good bet that you're going to like it. If we're back to walking through that park, it's like taking a path that's new to you, but many others like you have taken before, or like a hiking buddy showing you an interesting spot. But there are limits to this approach. It turns out that as good as machine learning algorithms are at learning, they need a lot of help from humans to understand the data they're learning from. Comparing your tastes with others who have similar taste is one way to help recommendation systems make sense of data. A more direct way is what we call algatorial using Spotify's editorial experts to curate the pool of content that our algorithms draw from. An algorithm doesn't know what great funk music is, but our editors do. And they also know the difference between jazz funk and funk rock and P-funk and G-funk, so the humans can make sure the algorithms don't put acid jazz in your Afro beat. This domain knowledge becomes even more important with reinforcement learning. Instead of relying on guided paths and fences, we want the algorithms to understand and learn from the entire territory of Spotify's content. We want to give them a map. But to an algorithm, a map is just squiggly lines. One path looks the same as another. So that's where the humans come in again. They're the ones who add labels to that map. In machine learning, this concept is known as humans in the loop. One example at Spotify is how we label music genres. The algorithm should know where the edges of all those funk genres touch. So if you're on a journey of discovery, taking you step by step from funk rock to funk metal, the algorithm doesn't end up taking you on a detour through a liquid funk meadow. Munya tells us more about how our machine learning relies on humans in the loop, not just Spotify's experts and editors, but our listeners too. Machine learning needs data. They need data set, like this is relevant, this is not relevant. This journey of the user led to success. This journey of the user led to a failure. So this comes through labelings, and, and this is like the human is giving us an interpretation of the data, so the machine learning can just make sense of it. From our research, we know that users thrive when they expand their taste, they listen to more diverse content, for example, in terms of genre in the context of music. So what the team has done, they try to understand what does it mean to have a path in changing their listening taste. So they built a web 
prototype, a web interactive tool. They did that with the help of Spotify experts, music creator, to really understand the genre space. And also through user research, they did user studies, trying to really understand exactly how things work. So what this interactive web tool did, they allow users to navigate through their genre. So you have like a space and they were, okay, that's what I listened to. And they could navigate to, to get a better understanding of where they stand with respect to the whole genre ecosystem at Spotify. This is not something that the machine learning could have done on their own. We're doing this to feed the machine learning. And there's interesting results. For example, personalization is key. They want their recommendation to be personalized. Discovery work for them if recommendations are of genre that are between two genres or at the edge of a genre. They wanted also more control of their path. They wanted to say, well, I want more of this and less of that. So again, it's helping us in our reinforcement learning. The whole point of reinforcement learning is like the user did something and we're learning out of it how to do better. It's really helping us better understand the connection between discovery diversity, change of taste, the dynamic and long-term satisfaction. So it's just always feeding back to that long-term satisfaction. So even though it's an algorithm that's making recommendations, there are humans all along the way. At every step, there are humans considering the user and the content, and the context for both. Another important consideration is providing the right experience at the right time. What people want changes when they're at the gym or when they're driving, when they feel like dancing and when they feel like studying. As context changes, recommendations change and how we evaluate those recommendations changes too. Like Munya said earlier, there's a big difference in engagement metrics between Discover Weekly and a playlist that you might put on to help you sleep. You have to be sensitive to the person and the situation. Are they searching for something specific, or are they just browsing their home screen? Are they listening to music or to a podcast? And what kind of a podcast? When measuring the effectiveness of recommendations, it seems like there's always one more thing to consider. In podcasts, for example, something that we just uh, presented at a conference uh, this week is depending on the type of podcast, users behave differently. Educational podcast, user will save it to listen to later on. While kind of news podcast, they will listen instantly. So again, we have to think if we only optimize for listen now, we're going to not have as many educational podcasts and so on. So it is machine learning. Sometimes the biggest problem is what is the right metrics. And, and we're constantly looking into this. The inside team at Spotify that is made of data scientists and user research play a big role in terms of metrics too. Of course, all those scientists and researchers have their work cut out for them because they're not just thinking about what's the right metric for understanding whether people are enjoying themselves now, but years from now. How do you predict whether your recommendations paid off five years from now? That's right. This is where our scientists and researchers resort to horoscopes and witchcraft. Actually, no. It's very difficult to build a prediction system that is going to say the user is going to stay for the next five years. Can't do that. What we try to do is to look at proxy of long-term satisfaction equal to users staying on the platform. And this is where, depending if it's a search, if it's a home playlist, is a little bit different. But it could be that a proxy is user is pretty active. Every time a user go into a playlist, they just at least play five tracks 
within that playlist. This is a good proxy of long-term satisfaction. And then you try to relate that to the actual optimization metric, which is not necessarily the next click, but a particular quality associated with the click. So there's those three stages. And what we're trying to do and we're making advance is how they correlate and also showing causality. Correlation is does not equal to causality. If you change something, it can have a correlation with the long-term satisfaction, but we have to be always super careful that we don't say it, it causes long-term satisfactions. We'll hear more about the fine art of using proxy metrics a little later in this episode when we talk with an ML engineer. But how about the big question? How are we doing with all of this anyway? Using ML and RL to help users on their journey of discovery? Well, that's a journey for us too. One cool thing Munya shared with me is a research study that showed reinforcement learning could help introduce people to less popular artists. That if you get all these things right, people will give artists they've maybe never heard of before a chance, which increases at least one kind of diversity in their listening experience. It also supports Spotify's mission of providing a platform that connects creators with listeners. Going back to the mission of the company, creator making a living out of their art. So it means there is this need for more creator to reach our users. So but we decided to, to look into from various technology, including reinforcement learning. We chose two definitions of diversity. One is diversity in terms of popularity. So let's recommend less popular content. And one is diversity in terms of uh, similar taste. So let's recommend something that is a bit less similar to what users uh, listen to. And there we really went through the full reinforcement learning framework. Interestingly, when we looked at the consumption data, and we find evidence that users are satisfied with relevant recommendations, but also with recommendations that depart from their historic taste or are less popular. And using reinforcement learning, we were able to show that pretty well. We could do better recommendation, increasing diversity without decreasing satisfaction. So we managed to shift consumption to more diverse content relatively quite well while we're recommending less popular content. And we also did that to recommend maybe less similar content, but the shifting was not as much, it was less, which just show that we need more work to understand what is diverse content in terms of taste. And I think the interesting thing is a lot of the work we're doing around this notion of diversity, it just come back and come back. So I think that's for me is, is kind of the fascinating part is it just feels it's, it's right. We're on the right journey because it keeps on saying, yeah, that's, that's right. And now to get it right, that's a different story. <laughs> yeah. So that's what we're doing at a high level with machine learning at Spotify. Using our research and data to create an overall experience that the user will appreciate over the long term and not only optimizing for the instant gratification of the next click. As Munya says taking the stairs sometimes for a better view and a more satisfying reward. But then, how do you actually apply these research theories in code? If you're optimizing for future rewards, sometimes years from now, how do you know the algorithm is doing what you want it to be doing? One of the reasons ML engineering is such a fascinating field is because it changes so quickly. There's no playbook on how to do machine learning because ML engineers are writing new pages every single day in production. I'm joined now by one of those engineers, Senior Staff Engineer Joe Cateruccio to tell us more about what else makes the practice of ML engineering so different from other kinds of software engineering. Hey, Joe. It's uh, great to have you here. Can we start by just having you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do at Spotify? 
Yeah, hey Dave, it's great to be here. My name's Joe, I'm a machine learning engineer at Spotify. I work primarily on our personalization and recommendation systems, primarily focused on recommender systems, recommending tracks to users, sequencing tracks to make your listening experience as delightful as possible. Let me start with the first thing you said. You said you're an ML engineer. I'm curious, what does that really mean? I'm familiar with backend and web, but I don't really know what an ML engineer is or does. It's a good question. I think if you asked maybe 10 ML engineers, you might get you know, 7.5, let's say, different answers. Being a machine learning engineer spans a wide variety of skill sets, everything from maybe more fundamental research tasks in machine learning, all the way through to putting things into production. And from that perspective, you actually need to be able to like context switch between something like, say, reading a current research paper and understanding deeply the mathematics that go into there, the intuition behind the methods that they're deriving, thinking as you're reading that about like simultaneously, how would I implement this if I actually had to code it up into a prototype, thinking about how that might scale into a production setting. And then as you experiment with those sorts of things, sort of doing this like value trade-off between, okay, how hard is this to actually implement? How hard is this to scale? And what's the benefit I'm getting from this thing? So being a machine learning engineer is like constantly towing this line between understanding ML research theory and fundamentals and the engineering required to actually like implement those things in an industrial setting. Depending on the individual, sometimes they sort of lean more heavily one way or the other like leaning a little more onto the research side and actually wanting to like go a little deep into something that you actually might find more of a standard ML researcher doing. And other people maybe think a lot more about the engineering systems and the end-to-end ML stacks. Sometimes we call those people like ML systems engineers. But yeah, depending on the part of say like the company that you're working in or the company that you're working at, the definition could change a little bit, but that tends to be the kind of span of skill sets that you'll see in a machine learning engineer. If you're working on a production team, sometimes you might actually have to like put on like a backend engineer hat and think about what's the service that I'm building that's serving my models. And if it's me, say, I, I put on that backend engineer hat and spin something up and then an actual backend engineer comes in and says like, this is good, thanks for getting this started. And then, you know, refactors like half of it to make the service more performant, but yeah. <laughs> Throws it all away, writes a new one, but doesn't tell you that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All yeah. complimentary, like, oh, this was spectacular. And then now you look at the the PRs and you're like, hmm, maybe not so spectacular. Yeah, that part sounds very familiar. The rest of it, to be honest, sounds pretty intense. Kind of multiple jobs in one and all of them are kind of fairly intense jobs. Sometimes it can feel that way. Everybody sort of has their area of depth. It's interesting because when we talk about, say, like T-shapedness in an engineer, T-shapedness in a machine learning engineer is, I think, like even more interesting to think about because the top of the T is usually a lot wider than maybe like other engineering disciplines. And the depth of the T is a lot narrower. When we say T-shapedness in engineering in general, what we mean is that you can cover a breadth of skills. So like, let's say that you're a data engineer. And so, okay, I know how to do like batch data pipelines. I know a variety of like data technologies and databases and things like that, but that you have a depth in sort of one area. And that's like the depth of the T. So like maybe um, I know a bunch about Apache Beam. I know how to write like distributed data systems, X, Y, Z, but I'm really good at streaming data pipelines in technology, fill in the blank. And that's the depth of the T. As you grow as an engineer, you end up with maybe it's not quite 
so much of a T as it is like an upside down triangle. In machine learning engineer, usually what we mean when we talk about that is actually that top of the T spans everything from say like data systems, modeling methods, implementations of models, how to actually like code them and run them. And then all the way through serving stacks. And that's like where the breadth comes in. And then the depth, maybe you're a little more methodologically focused, or maybe you're a little more systems focused. So that's where like there's a little bit of a difference is that the span of the top of the T for ML engineers, let's say has a higher variance, I guess, <laughs> than maybe other engineering disciplines, at least now, as the role evolves, and it's evolved a lot, but that's what actually makes it very exciting, I think, because there's like never a shortage of problems. And there's never a shortage of things that you don't understand. And if you're really excited by like, oh, I get to learn this new thing, being a machine learning engineer means you're going to be doing that constantly. Never a dull moment. Then makes me think, like, how did you get into this? Kind of, How did you get to this point that you have all these pieces of the tea under your belt? Honestly, I think sometimes if you look back, the process feels like kind of random and lucky. It's really actually like being exposed to the opportunity to try those things in the, in the first place that allows you to get that first little nugget of experience. So for me, when I was in school, I did a lot of statistics and economics work. And I first actually realized that I kind of liked the more applied side when I actually took some models of economics theories and actually implemented it. I thought it was something spectacular, but in that case, it's like a very simple model, like a linear model. And you write the code to run it and you're like, oh, this is how this works. I get it now. Like you look at the math and it feels overwhelming. And then you look at the code and you're like, aha, I see the like translation. And so through just like many opportunities to actually like learn a method, implement it and have to serve it up to users or serve it up in some sort of like industrial application, I sort of picked up the top of the T. And, you know, a lot of that happened at Spotify. Like I remember working on our voice application and writing like my first high throughput backend service to serve predictions from our model and being like, oh my gosh, I have no idea what I'm doing. And like trying to learn all the details on the fly. And then there's another very experienced backend engineer at the company who looked at my service and he was like, okay, I'm going to tell you everything that's wrong with this. And then we <laughs> go through it all. And that was like the first high throughput model service that I wrote Spotify and you pick it up and then take that experience and apply it to the next thing. And so it's been like just a lot of sequences of opportunities to build something for real that actually allows you to gain that intuition about how to build it, gain that intuition about how to balance your methodological choices with how you're actually going to use them. So like that's another big thing in, you know, industrial ML is like when you're doing it for real, you actually need to think about what are the failure points going to be in a methodological decision when you actually try and implement it at scale. So you might have something where like the model maybe theoretically is the best modeling choice you could make and it's going to work really, really well. And there's five new archive papers that all say that this thing is going to be spectacular. But when you look at it, you think like, hmm, the inference latency on this is going to be way too high. And uh, it's never actually going to work because we're going to be tripping fallbacks constantly and everyone's going to get like some baseline solution instead of our model. So it doesn't actually matter. And so, you know, having like, for example, like the first experience of doing something like that, taking a baseline, like a simple model that had relatively good accuracy and then spending a bunch of time building some like really complex cutting edge model and feeling all happy with myself and then serving both of them and then all of a sudden seeing like the dashboards with the complex model like constantly tripping our p99 alert and being like oh okay 
was really excited, but it turns out it's serving like 3% of traffic when it should be serving like 70. And uh, the effect isn't actually getting applied. Personally, I'm really interested in understanding more of how you test these things because I keep hearing about like the algorithms versus like the data you use and how hard it is to do simple things like an A-B test. Mm-hmm, how do you mm-hmm. determine if things are working in this yeah. ML world? It's really hard, honestly. I've found personally the first thing is always expect that there's something wrong. Like even if everything looks like it's working well, that might mean that there's something wrong, actually. <laughs> Let's say you see a model that has like a very high predictive accuracy. Maybe even you run a test and it looks like it's working really, really well. Like usually I'm actually suspicious of those sorts of things. So that helps a lot. But because of the number of inputs involved in these real world ML systems, there are a lot of points at which some assumption that you made or some simple decision that you thought you were making in like a data pipeline (laughs) actually affects the decisions your model makes. And then when you serve that, you'll see some metric result that might look really encouraging, but it's actually because you unknowingly made a decision in your training data for the model that was like directly tied to the top line business metric in a way that you didn't intend. And so the metric actually looks like it's doing really, really well. Like users are completing a lot of tracks that you show to them, but actually the skip count increased like tenfold too. And that's not what you want. So really, honestly, the easiest way to deal with this is just to be like very, very diligent at every step and sort of constantly skeptical that the thing that you're building is doing what you want it to do. Because even in the model's case itself, it's just going to be wrong about what it's trying to predict. You're going to have inference errors because the models are like, they're probabilistic, they're predictive, and that's perfectly fine. But it can be hard to tell the difference between an error, like an inference error and a bug. You could have a bug in your model training code or your inference code that you don't notice because it's still giving you back numbers. And sometimes you can kind of like talk yourself into thinking that the results look okay. Like, oh yeah, that's what I would expect to see. Usually it starts with like, huh, those look interesting. And then you start to unpack it and you're like, okay, maybe it's fine. And then you sort of need to like squash that feeling and go back to thinking like, okay, let me see if I can find something wrong here. So it's a constant hunt, I guess. Can you then explain what an inference error is and why that's different from a bug. So let's say that like I'm trying to predict if a user is going to complete a track, right? And so the model is given a user and some features, maybe like it's Joe and Joe historically really likes folk music. And then it's given a track and we say like, okay, this is a folk track and it has certain acoustic properties and things like that. And basically the model has learned a function that takes those input features and outputs, say, like an expected probability of completion. And it's learned that from overall patterns in in what we call training data, but basically like historical examples of these interactions with some ground truth outcome that we trust and that we've vetted and cleaned. And we use that to sort of learn a pattern in the data. But sometimes that prediction will just be wrong. Based on all the data we have and all the features that we provided to the model, it would predict that I have a 93% chance of completing this track, maybe that probability was accurate and we actually just got unlucky. It was that 7% chance that I wasn't going to, or maybe something actually in the underlying data in the features itself led to that really high predicted probability. But in actuality, that was something like a 60% chance. And so if I act on that 93% probability, it's an inference error. Like the prediction was the model's prediction, but in actuality, it was like much lower. A bug would be something where maybe 
one of those features that I'm passing to the model, let's say during training time was correct, but during inference time, when I like deploy the model to make predictions online, I'm accidentally pulling the wrong feature. So every track, no matter what it is, gets acoustic properties that come from like the average Metallica track played over the last five days. So all of my model probabilities, if it's Joe and Joe loves folk music, and the model is exposed to a track, but the feature pulled in about that track is actually about a metal track, is going to be really low. No, Joe doesn't want to play this, but actually it's just a bug. You're pulling in the wrong feature. You give the model information, it's made its decision, but it's a bug in your system that's caused you to get like an erroneous prediction. And so you can look at those probabilities and see them and maybe talk yourself into thinking that like, oh, okay, maybe it's accurate. And that's why it's actually like, we try to dissect those things as deeply as possible and say like, okay, let's take users that we know somehow like folk music, right? Let's pass to the model folk tracks and we should see a distribution of probabilities that's quite high. And now let's filter some of those same users when we run a test and see if the predictive probabilities are also high and then see what they actually did and sort of dissect to make sure that when we're seeing errors, they're prediction errors, like, oop, the model made a wrong prediction here. The user actually completed this track and we thought they weren't going to. Let's look back at our features. Let's look back at the behavior and see how can we tweak the model to make it more accurate the next time versus a bug where we're like, ooh, all of our model predicted probabilities are 0.5. That cannot be right. Sometimes they're as easy to see as that. Usually though, it's a little more nuanced of an issue if you have a bug. So I guess you've talked a little bit about kind of stages at which you can test and ways in which you can try to validate these bugs. I'm curious mm. about the full process for deploying something like this. And I mean, like in the backend world, I can easily picture like you roll out to X percent, you like watch all of your metrics, you make sure that nothing's crashing and more or less can just automatically roll out to higher and higher percentages. Mm-hmm. With everything you just said and all the ways in which you test, it sounds like in this ML world, you can't just have a dozen deployments a day and really easily for metrics just see like, oh, roll out to the next 10%. Oh, roll out globally. Like, we're good. How do you yeah. do that? <laughs> you can. It depends on how much you automate the type of statistics that you use to try and like see how the model is performing. So let's say, for example, I have some sort of like ground truth distribution of what I expect my model's score predictions to look like. And I can do this on some like offline data, like, you know, generate this distribution and be like, okay, here's what it should look like if it's correct. And then as I roll out the model to more and more traffic, I can check to see if the distribution of online scores is statistically significantly different than this sort of like expected distribution of predicted probabilities. And if it looks really different, I can like alert and be like, oh, well, something happened with the model. And like this tends to surface bugs really well. Like if something in the inference is just consistently failing, maybe you go from 15 to 20% And all of a sudden you're not fetching features fast enough because of the increase in traffic and you're tripping some SLA and you're getting like a fallback for your model. You'll see like the score distribution like converge to whatever that fallback is. And it's different than what you'd expect to see. And all of a sudden you'll get an alert and you'll be like, oop, yep, something's happening. But as far as developing the mechanisms to check, to just actually say, what are those distributions that we want to measure What are the statistics that we want to measure offline and then online as we start to roll out a model that just requires a lot of like very diligent data analysis, you know, at each stage that we 
roll out the model online. You know, we start with like a, a small sample and then let's collect that data. And then let's like spend three, four weeks doing like some very in-depth data analysis of how is it working? How is it not working? What are the sets of users or the genres for which this thing is working and not working? Is that what I expect? How can I use that to define success metrics, model evaluation metrics, and monitoring metrics online? And then given that, now roll it out a little more to more traffic, see how those things hold and carry over, and then kind of like increase that level. It's like a very iterative process. And sometimes it can feel manual. And I think in a lot of engineering disciplines, sometimes those manual tasks are not really good. But in machine learning, I actually feel like it is because it then allows you to develop like a deep intuition for the problem. And it's that intuition that's usually going to start to surface the like comfort in that this thing is really working or that intuition that's going to surface that sort of sense like maybe something's off. And at least what I've found is that if you overly automate everything, you end up in a lot of situations where the system is affected by a bug and you're not noticing because you don't have that like intuition to sniff it out and say like, oh, something's amiss here. So this sort of like incremental manual procedure to sort of get yourself comfortable with the overall setting is really critical, at least these days in applied machine learning. Maybe like in the future, you know, if we had this interview, like who knows, maybe two years from now, maybe 10 years from now, it would just be like, oh man, I just train a model. I click submit on our dashboard setting and it gets pushed off into production. And then we just sit back and like, wait, but now it's, you know, you roll it out and then you like very diligently watch your metrics immediately start running your data pipelines to collect the data from the rollout. And then you immediately start analyzing it very manually, like making plots, looking at summary statistics, that sort of thing. That's really interesting because I think, like you said, it is very counterintuitive to, I think, most of the things we do at this sort of scale, especially on the backend side, where it's just like automate everything. So I think that that's a really interesting difference. One thing I wanted to ask you to go back to, you touched on offline data and offline testing. What does that mean? So we can basically break up the way we sort of evaluate our models into sort of two categories. So when we're building these sort of like recommender systems, a lot of the times the thing we're asking the model to predict is actually like a proxy for what we really want. So if I was to show you a track and I, and I think that like, you know, music is a really good example of this, I think, because it's like a really visceral kind of like personal experience. So when you listen to that track, that's like really, really good. You have that feeling of like, yeah, like I love this. And you don't really know what it is. You might actually like Sometimes maybe you skip that track, but it was that there's like that one core part of that track that like really just you really, really love. And so we don't know that, right? Like I can't ask you every time like, hey, how was that track? Did you really, really like it? And actually, even if you do, so like you'd ask the user for we would call that explicit feedback. Give me a thumbs up if you like that track or a thumbs down if you didn't. Sometimes that works. Sometimes you can't even trust explicit feedback. Like people will provide explicit feedbacks for the things that they think they're supposed to like and the things that they think they're supposed to dislike, but it's not actually what they're really doing. And in Spotify's case, explicit feedback can be a little more difficult even because the turn on a track, like the level of effort to say, pull up your phone, open up the app and hit thumbs up when you really, really like it is a lot. And you're probably not going to do that if you really, really like it because you just want to keep listening. So we have to define behaviors in the data 
that we think are indicative of this like underlying love of the music that you're listening to. And so we call that the proxy target. And basically what the first stage is, once you define a proxy target, you need to actually look to see how your proxy target manifests in the data and how that maybe ties to like other metrics, like business metrics that you're interested in moving and affecting. So that's like before you even do any modeling. And then what you do is, okay, so now you have a proxy target, you understand it, how it drives your users listening experience, you understand how it drives your sort of business metrics. Now I'm going to train a model to predict that proxy target. And this part of the model evaluation is actually like very, very typical of about any machine learning setting where you say, okay, like I want to predict completion. How accurate is my model at predicting completion? That's just like direct evaluation of the prediction task. And there are a number of model evaluation metrics that we use to evaluate that accuracy. But then there's like, I like to call it secondary analyses that you would do because you would say something like, okay, well, if my model is good at predicting the tracks that the user would complete, probably a lot of the tracks that you would complete, you would also maybe add to a playlist. So let me see if the high probability of completion tracks that it predicts also tend to be in the top set of tracks that the user is likely to add to their playlist. And that would tell you that not only have you picked a good proxy target, but that it sort of aligns well with like this overall user behavior and there's nothing sort of quirky or weird happening. And so that whole set of primary analyses, like the accuracy on the target itself, and then secondary analyses gives you this good set of offline model evaluation metrics. And then maybe you would actually have a few models trained in that setting and one does okay, one does a little bit better, and one does the best on this set of metrics. Then you would test those three models online. And then you would see, okay, well, my understanding going in is that model A should do the worst, B should do something in the middle, and C should do the best. When I launch them online, is that actually what happens? Like directionally, do they align? And sometimes actually you might even look to explicitly correlate you know, your offline model evaluation metrics with what you see online. And that can kind of give you this understanding of how to evaluate and tweak your model performance offline. And then when you do that, be confident, at least somewhat confident that that's going to manifest in a gain when you actually test it. So then that makes me wonder, if you talked about all of these stages and a bunch of this manual, like graph making data analysis stuff you do, it's like a lot of very different tasks that are all part of the process. What are the tools you have or like the platforms you do this on? I can't imagine you're just doing all of this manually in like an Excel spreadsheet. Oh yeah, definitely not an Excel spreadsheet. Although I'm sure you find some people that are doing some of this in an Excel spreadsheet. The core of the tool set, for example, that we're using to do these evaluations, gather data for investigations are pretty common between people who are, say, machine learning engineers and people who might call themselves like a data scientist. You know, you're using like SQL on top of some of our pre-built data sets to like grab data to make some plots in an IPython notebook using a lot of the like off-the-shelf statistical packages that you might find in Python and numerical packages, things like NumPy, SciPy, Scikit-learn, all of these sorts of readily available machine learning, statistics, data analysis packages. Where things get a little bit different is in that sort of like production transition, because not only am I grabbing that data from that relational database, whatever it is, but I'm usually writing or working with data engineers to write the data pipelines that's populating it in the first place. And those data pipelines are processing like streaming event logs. So that requires 
at least in Spotify's case, most of our machine learning engineers know Shio, which is our preferred language for data processing and framework for data processing, which obviously, you know, and are familiar with that. And then from there, you know, for the model training, we typically use TensorFlow. And what I like to think about is like TensorFlow is a really, really good library for doing sort of distributed and complex linear algebra and optimization at scale. That could manifest as something that looks like a deep neural network. It could manifest as something that looks like logistic regression, like a very simple method. But it's it allows us to sort of write this highly functional machine learning code in a way that we can scale up the training and in a way that we can serve it. When we write those models and then we serve them, we're serving them on Spotify's like standard backend systems. But you can see here, like as I'm enumerating this toolkit, the number of things involved. And then it goes back again, right? Like when then once we serve it, we're back to our data pipelines to process the information from our logs once we serve the model that gets translated into some like nice clean data sets that I can pull with SQL into my notebook, make my plots again, and see where my model's working and not working. And then the cycle kind of repeats itself. I feel like you started off with a few, I'll say industry standard, even if it might be like there's 30 standards or whatever. And then you kind of hand waved it into production. I'm curious, what does it actually look like to take something that like looks great in a notebook? and mm. turn it into something that actually operates, like you said, on some of the Spotify backend technologies at hundreds of billions of MAU scale. That thing that works in a notebook, when I'm doing that notebook iteration, it's to actually play with the method. It's to understand like what are the mathematics of the model going to look like. And even if I'm coding it like in TensorFlow in that notebook, it's just to get that sort of ML methodology in place. Then we have to think about, okay, like how am I going to actually like put this into production? So the first stage is training locally on a notebook on your computer or even on like a big virtual machine is a lot different than training the model on the actual scale of training data we would need to make it performant for all of Spotify's users. Given that you can scale your training data pipelines, which like Shio, for example, as our tool for typically building our training data works quite well there. The next bottleneck becomes how do I scale my model training? And this is actually the first instance where like your methodological choices might bite you a little bit because distributing the mathematics involved in some model methods versus others can be trivial or really, really complex. Like depending on the model that you chose, it might be easy to make training embarrassingly parallel over like random samples of records. But if you picked some other model method that might actually be like impossible or some cutting edge, you know, research into how to train in parallel. But doing distributed training is a pretty critical piece of scaling up the model training so that it's exposed to enough data and a diversity of data that actually makes the decisions accurate. So that's the first bit. How do I scale up the training? Now, thankfully, and this is where I say we use TensorFlow, like TensorFlow has a lot of let's say, built-in distributed training capabilities that we can leverage. Usually we're training these things on GPUs. So that allows like a high level of data throughput and GPUs are, as a hardware device, really well optimized for doing complex matrix manipulation and linear algebra type operations because it's very similar to the, well, it's basically the same as a lot of the graphics operations that they're doing. So we can use GPUs to train these models at a high level of data throughput. And then now the question, say you have a trained model, is how do I save it? What you have in a model is you have all of these 
weights and operations that ultimately result from like, you know, you have some data passed in, you do a bunch of stuff, and then you get a prediction out. You have to serialize that somehow. But also you have to think about, well, if I serialize it in one way, is that going to allow me to actually serve it in our backend stack? Like with Spotify's backend, it's on the JVM. So I need something that I can deserialize on the JVM and use there. But if it's something like, say, scikit-learn, it's not so straightforward. There are ways, but it's not so straightforward to serialize a model that you train in scikit and then unpack it on the JVM and serve it in like a Java environment. There's things called like PMML or JPMML, like these sort of rule sets you can use to translate a model that we train in one setting. Usually it's, it's Python. A lot of these packages are Python-based. So that you're training in Python in a Python environment, but then unpacking in a serving environment that's, say, not Python, it's like Java. TensorFlow makes this actually really easy. I mean, well, it's not easy, but they did a lot of the work for us. But then you start to have to investigate the nuance of, well, what version of TensorFlow am I using when I train this thing? What version of TensorFlow am I using when I serve this thing? Sometimes it'll work. But you'll notice like the latency, like the actual, if you just, you know, count the milliseconds from the time where you pass the model data to you get a prediction out on the JVM is different than what you'd expect to see if you did it like locally in, in Python and you do the profiling. So that's where like some of knowing the guts of the library helps, knowing like how the operations in one version of the library might be a little bit different than how they're implemented in an older or newer version of the library. And that's where like kind of the rubber meets the road for the actual like putting things into production. And notice that in this whole discussion, I was talking about the method and the machine learning bit for like a very small portion. And I was like, yeah, I would train a model. You know, you do a lot of iteration on the model itself, obviously, in a lot of ways, that's the best part. It's the most fun part, but it's like 15% of the work. I'm really curious with the tooling, kind of how much of this is like things that are happening within your teams or things that are happening within Spotify and you're kind of having to invent or reinvent because of some Spotify thing, I don't know, our scale or it's different from music or something about your teams. Or if mm. most of the stuff is really like it's TensorFlow, it's some other like open source or industry standard thing and much of what you're doing is really just building on top of external things rather than building crazy things that are only possible in the ML space at Spotify. It's definitely a mix. You know, a lot of the stuff we build starts at what the industry standards are. It starts with the tools that we can grab and use. But as the problems scale up, there's tons of things that become Spotify specific. If we think about it from the recommender system side, for example, because that's a lot of what I work on, the interaction dynamics in music is very different than, say, like the interaction dynamics in like movies or news articles or something like that. And that informs like a slew of methodological decisions that might actually like diverge a little bit from what the standard methodology choices might be and how you would train those models, how you would create your training data. And then we have a really amazing machine learning platform group at Spotify that actually takes a lot of these industry standard toolkits and adapts the technology to work really well in Spotify's stack. In my team, because of what we do, we tend to be either at or a little bit beyond the cutting edge of where our internal platform systems are. So we work a lot with our machine learning platform group 
to basically give them like a feeder for like, hey, we're trying out this like, you know, external technology or this new like NVIDIA GPU library for us at Spotify. How is that going to translate into what you build for, you know, Spotify's like overall machine learning community? So in, in that sense, like my team and the teams that I tend to work with are a little more involved with taking industry standard technology and adapting it to Spotify's use cases than maybe other teams at Spotify are where they're taking the adapted versions. But our ML platform group does a ton of work in actually making that adaptation work for many ML teams at Spotify. And and over the years, we've seen that work increase a lot. And what that's enabled us to do is actually like increase the volume of iteration and machine learning application for the company as a whole, because the number of teams like mine that are used to iterating in the weeds or want to iterate in the weeds, it really distracts you from like the actual problem sometimes, you know, like, oh no, this GPU library is not working. Like I wonder why. And then that's like a a whole sprint of like investigation and optimization versus like you use Spotify's baked in ML stack that we've done all that work already. Now you can just train your model on however many GPUs you want. The other thing, the Spotify specific thing I found really interesting when we were talking to Munya, she talked about how different doing a lot of this work is between music and podcasts. And I think you talked a yeah. lot about tracks and most of your examples were around listening to music. Uh, and you talked about kind of like the explicit signals being different because people want to like sit back and listen instead of mm-hmm. grabbing their phones and how like it's such a visceral experience to enjoy a track. But I'm not sure how much even those high level things, much less the details apply to podcasts. I um, spent some time in the past working on our podcast recommender systems, and a lot of the methodologies you might use are similar, but the intuition about the problem is totally different. Like when you think about defining proxy targets, like in music, I'm thinking about one set of interactions with a track that means that I like it. And a lot of times the easiest way to like suss out these proxy targets is to think like a human being, right? Just think about like, well, I listen to music. What do I do when I like music? And the starting point for building our podcast recommenders when we work on that is exactly the same thing. Like, well, I listen to podcasts. What do I do when I like a podcast? You know, it may be like a really good positive signal for listening to a podcast episode is actually being interactive with that episode, like clicking around at different parts of it. Oh, that was really interesting. Like what I just heard, let me click back a little bit and listen to that part of the episode again. Like that could give you a really good positive example for someone being engaged with an episode. And then you could aggregate that into someone being engaged with a show. And even though you're using the same model type to predict like, are they going to click around on an episode versus are they going to complete a track? The intuition about the problem really comes in with defining the training data, defining how you're going to evaluate the model, defining like what a good set of outcomes are versus a bad set of outcomes. That's just the, let alone the features that you use to describe the user's behavior and the items to the model. It's like totally different across these settings. Like for example, you could do the exact same sort of thing thinking about, okay, I have 15 different album cover images I could show to the user when showing them this playlist. Which one do I pick? All of a sudden you're in like an image application setting. So we have recommender systems with music, recommender systems with long form audio content. You have image problems. You have things like re-ranking items on the homepage, which is a whole set of other problems. You have search problems. 
like working on our some of our voice systems. I was working on like named entity recognition, intent classifications. That's so like speech to text and natural language problems. There's just no end to the application areas. And a lot of times, like the sort of fundamentals of the methodologies you're using in these settings are very similar. But it's it's really that intuition about the problem, the specific problems that you build over time that makes you successful in solving them. The next thing I wanted to ask you about a little bit was what it's like working with other teams and other disciplines from this ML engineering point of view. And like, which teams do you even more regularly have to work with to keep making progress on this stuff? One thing that you know, I would say going back to, we talked about the T-shapedness of an ML engineer. You don't build your T-shapedness as an ML engineer in a silo. You kind of build it by interacting with other teams that are better at that thing than you are and learning from those teams. So, you know, I said that like we, for example, interact a lot with our ML platform teams and in interacting with people over there, you know, I'm learning a lot about like different, more cutting edge technologies for distributed training or distributed model deployment, like all sorts of things in the serving stack, like any number of things. That's just like on the engineering side. Then on the methodological side as an ML engineer, usually you're interacting with our researchers, with tech research. And there you get to pick the brain of somebody who's like an expert in methodology type A. So for right now, we're doing a lot of work in what's called reinforcement learning. And, you know, although I've done a number of applied ML projects in my career, I'm not an RL expert at the level of like an RL researcher. But on our team, we have a number of RL researchers. So I get to interact with them, actually work on some like fundamental research with them and use that as a way to build my own knowledge. And then the same thing is true, you know, on the data side, on the backend side. You know, if we're operating in playlists, we're working with the data teams that process like the large amount of interaction data we get when users interact with playlists into events that we can use to train our models. And we're learning a lot about those data systems. Then there's, you know, we have a model. Now, how do we serve it inside of that ecosystem? So there's definitely like a large and diverse set of groups that you interact with as a machine learning engineer. And I think a key, if you're an ML engineer, is recognizing like the opportunities to learn from those interactions and use that to build your own experience. I mean, I guess it kind of goes back to that T-shapedness thing, like how T-shaped are you versus like the places where you can hand off to someone who has incredible depth on that piece. Exactly. One thing I wanted to do is we had a collection of ML terms that we've been throwing around or hearing about, and I wanted to get a kind of a better definition on. ML trivia on the record. Let's try it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so you better get these right. <laughs> Pressure's on. One thing I keep hearing with RL is focusing on these value functions and like what even is a value function, both kind of an RL sense, but also like to Spotify, what would be? Yeah, there's two terms, let's say the star function that you'll hear in reinforcement learning a lot of the time. So one's the value function and one's the Q function. I'll give you like a simplified version of the textbook definition to start with is basically like in reinforcement learning, there's something called the state. So it's basically like um, if you were to look at a game, like let's say you were playing chess and you look at the chessboard, when you perceive that chessboard, you're processing what's called the state. It's like the pieces in the positions that they're in. And so the value function basically is saying like, given the state that I'm in, 
and my current understanding of how to play the game, what's the likelihood that I'm going to win at the end? It basically gives you the value of the state that you're in at a given point in time in the game. Intuitively, you actually can understand this, right? If you're playing a game and you look at the board, you might actually have this feeling like, okay, like I'm in a good spot or this feeling like, uh, I'm not in a good spot. Like I'm not going to win the game given the way the pieces are oriented, for example, or like (laughs) I'm going to have to make some tweaks to really win the game given the way the pieces are oriented. It's that intuition of say like gameplay, the value function is trying to encapsulate. So you might be in like a really bad state will have a low value, meaning that from that state, if you follow your current decision-making policy, you stand a low probability of gaining the long-term cumulative reward you're looking to gain. And so for Spotify, the question is like, well, what's the reward that we're trying to get? How do we define the state? And then how do we relate the state to that reward? And that relationship would be the value function. And typically these are like you actually learn the value function. So you given a state definition and a definition of reward, you essentially like train a model to say like, okay, given this state and the reward that I've specified, what's the value, the predicted value of this state going to be? And it could be something like the reward is specific to say like users interacting with a session. So it could just be like, oh, I want to maximize the play count or make the session length as long as possible, which would give you one estimate of the value of a state. But it could be like, I want this user to engage with Spotify over the next three years, in which case the value of a state for a specific session might be one thing, but the value of that state for a long-term user engagement could be completely different. Okay, Munya, your turn to help us understand some ML terms. Can you give me kind of a quick definition of what cold start means? Cold start is when you have new type of content. You have no consumption data about that type of content, and you just try to find the best way to recommend that. It could also be you have a new user when you don't have much information about that user and you try to find the best recommendation to that user. So this will be uh, mostly kind of a new user. In the example I gave before, it was actually active users on our platform, but they hardly listen to podcasts on Spotify. So it was partly to do that. And it's like, okay, we have this podcast content on our platform. We have those users that so far haven't listened to podcasts. That is the cold start problem in that case. And you want to do the recommendation in a way that I'm going to try something. Doing, I'm going to do my best guess that you're going to like it, but I don't have as much data that I would do if I had consumption data. We we did some work that was published, I think last year or the year before at the Information Retrieval Conference, where we look at what is called cold start problem for podcast. So those are users that are on our platform. They never really listen to podcasts yet. They listen to a lot of music and we try to see whatever we understand about the user. So it's a cold start from the podcast perspective. And actually, to our surprise, there was some connection to the type of genre of music, to the type of podcast. Not for all, but enough. And actually, this is being deployed at Spotify in the context of Call Start. We should just acknowledge that podcast is sometime an hour. 
there's less room to do the wrong recommendation because user will invest a lot. While music, I always say, well, maybe this recommendation was not the best, but the user didn't lose the whole day on it. The last trivia thing I want to throw at you is just because I love the word so much. Uh-huh. Can you explain what a bandit is? Aside from something that's robbing trains. Exactly. A, yeah, yeah. So it's a methodology that we use to essentially, like, given some number of choices, try to isolate what the optimal choice is. Given some historical data up until that point, slot machines is a really good intuitive example. You go to a casino and you're in front of several slot machines and you just want to make money. And you go into each of the slots and you decide, okay, for some slots you have observed them and you know that it's going to work. And for some, you have no clue how this is going to work. So in, in one case, is when you want to optimize your reward, you want to optimize the money. So you try to build algorithms or policies that try, okay, if I'm doing those three, you know, I pull the arm, pull the arm, I'm going to optimize money. But it could be that this one I know nothing about is where I'm going to earn much more. And so on. So the bandit is really trying to optimize for a maximum reward basing on, I know what I'm going to get. I know what I could get. But the bandit is the first step of reinforcement learning. It predicts the next click or the next positive action. In the context of music, it's usually like maybe I have one of five album art choices to make for a user. One of them is going to lead to a really high probability that they're going to click through on this playlist. And I know contextual features about the user. Like, is an artist they like in one of the images of these five album choices? That will guide my selection of one of them. But every so often, I might decide to explore a little bit and pick another one. And so the the algorithms that do these sorts of things are called bandits. Thank you so much for talking to us. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, no, super fun for me. Thanks for having me. What else do you nerd out about? This I try to do non-tech stuff. I try to be better at yoga. I still have a very long journey. There are some movements which I would love to do. It's like this long-term satisfaction. I try to do one where it's called the crane pose, where you just have your legs on your hands and this kind of thing. It looks beautiful and effortless, and I can't do this. The day I manage this, I feel that I can change hobbies, but I'm, I'm still there. My main hobby is climbing, like rock climbing, but my nerd out manifests there with my training plan. So I have like uh, spreadsheets with like metrics that I track with how much weight can I do a pull up with when I add it or how much weight can I hang from a board and project like, you know, if I want to climb a certain thing, how much I'm going to need to add. And it's the same sort of behavior, but it manifests in a completely different setting than ML and Spotify. Doesn't usually work as well because I have a sample <laughs> size of one. And actually, you know, it's funny because I was—I've been climbing for a lot longer than I've been doing machine learning. But I wonder if somehow the uh, little dynamics of problem solving and climbing actually planted the seed for some of my uh, your work behaviors. My, my work <laughs> behaviors, yeah, exactly. Thanks for listening to Nerd Out at Spotify. You can find links for the research mentioned in this episode in the show notes. Next. We're going to dive even deeper into machine learning at Spotify, starting with the most important piece, the data. So if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to follow and subscribe. 
Nerd Out at Spotify is produced by Spotify's Ted Vergakis and Seaplane Armada, who also wrote our fantastic theme song. And I'm Dave Zolotowski. Thanks for nerding out with us. Thank you.